For more than 50 weeks, the life and works of Jesus Christ have been at the center of our study. His ministry, miracles, and atonement have created a legacy which has defined much of the entire course of history. It is within that context that we look back to the start of the most defining and influential era in human history, a lowly stable in Bethlehem. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit may teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. One Christ-centered tradition that I like to do is to give a gift to the Savior, put under the tree. Sometimes I write like something I want to improve on that year or something I want to focus on and put on the tree as a gift to the Savior. My favorite Christ-centered tradition is to stay up all night. Um, I try my best not to fall asleep on Christmas Eve, partially so that when everyone's asleep, I can go put out gifts and things. But um, I especially love to just sit and look at the stars and just think just like Joseph and Mary might have been or as the people in the Americas might have been on that night that Jesus Christ was born. And if I can make it until dawn, when I see the sun come up, it's just a very special feeling knowing that, you know, this is the day spring that is coming into the world today. Christ to me is everything. He is my big brother, he's my savior, he's my redeemer. His birth is so important to me because he followed through with the plan. I mean, the plan started in the pre-existence, and so uh, him being born and him following through with the crucifixion means that I can go back home to my Heavenly Father, and that is why we're here. Merry Christmas, everyone. My name is Ben Lomu, and I'm your host. Our Gospel Scholar for today is Carrie Mielstein. Carrie has degrees from BYU in Psychology and Ancient Near Eastern Studies, as well as a PhD from UCLA in Egyptology and Hebrew Language and Literature. He is a professor of Ancient Scripture at BYU and also has taught at the BYU Jerusalem Center. He and his wife have six children and one grandchild. Carrie, welcome back. Thank you, so good to be with you again. And we wanna welcome back our special guest, Janet Erickson. Janet is an associate professor in the Department of Church History and Doctrine in BYU's Religious Education Program. She lives in American Fork, Utah with her husband, Michael, and their two children. Janet, welcome back. Thank you, so good to be here, Ben. And we're also joined by our studio audience. Thank you all for being here. And to each of you at home, we are so happy you have come to join us for today's discussion. Please follow along and share your thoughts with us on any of our social media platforms. Today, we've selected two topics to discuss that relate to the birth and mission of Jesus Christ using various passages from the New Testament. These topics and discussions support and build upon the Come Follow Me resource developed and published by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The two topics we are going to discuss are Jesus Christ condescended to be born among us on earth and Christ fulfilled his mission so I can have eternal life. After exploring these two topics with our panel and studio audience, we'll let our studio audience go and dive deeper into the scriptures with Carrie and Janet in footnotes. Okay, Carrie, so as we jump into this first topic, Jesus Christ condescended to be born among us on earth. How does understanding Christ's entire mission help us really appreciate and understand his birth? I think at this point, we need to think in terms of the, the big picture uh, and, and think in terms of God's plan for us and his covenant. I think sometimes we tend to focus on 
just the Gospels. Now, we sh certainly should learn from the Gospels, right? But that's one of his roles. And if we forget everything he does before and after that, then we, we don't get a, a well-rounded picture mm -hmm. of Christ. And so I think it's helpful to think about Christ as the creator. Jehovah, as he is often portrayed in the Old Testament, what we might call the divine warrior. That's, that's a scholarly phrase we sometimes use, but it comes from times like in the Exodus where they talk about him as a man of war because he's just saved Israel that that's the being who comes down mm -hmm. in incredibly humble circumstances. That it really recontextualizes for me and helps me think about what that condescension really is. Mm -hmm. Janet, what are your thoughts as we look at Christ from, like, as Carrie said, from all aspects, mm -hmm. uh, what can that teach us specifically about his birth and mission? Yeah. Oh, it's so powerful to think of this fulfillment of covenant. I love how Carrie teaches about covenant, but here the Lord condescending to be with us in fulfillment of that covenant, the glorious God, Jehovah, who had been creator of the whole earth, who rains manna from heaven, who makes possible all of these miraculous events, and all of that then come, come to a mother who brings him to life in a manger, in a stable, and then to think of the combination of that is this being who will come be with me in my vulnerability, in the realities that are part of mortality, in the messiness that is mortality with me and is the great conqueror across the Old Testament. And in the Book of Mormon, they're looking to this Messiah who will come in fulfillment of the covenant to be with us. And Carrie, and as we talk about this word uh, condescension, it's not actually found in the Gospels, correct? No. So um, in, in 1 Nephi chapter 11, we have this experience of Nephi in a vision. The angel asks him in verse 16, knowest thou the condescension of God? Carrie, do you mind uh, explaining to us a little bit about what condescension means and how it can help us understand the birth of Christ? Uh, I'm happy to do that. And it's such a powerful word and powerful idea that he gives us there in that phrase as he then goes on to talk about the birth of Christ. Uh, but let's start with what the word means. Uh, we've got, we understand the descend part. Con means to be with, right? So he is descending to be with us. And I think that's such a, a powerful idea that he is coming from on high to be with us on our level, and then he will be raised up so he can raise us to his level. Well, so as we talk about this condescension, um, as you know, it's Christmas, of course, we're gonna talk about the birth uh, of Christ. We have a question that came in from one of our viewers It's gonna kind of springboard us into this conversation of Christ's birth. Hi, my name is Addison, and I live in Layton, Utah. Here's my question. Who are the people who are waiting for the birth of Christ and how did they know when he was born? Mm. That's a great way to start off this conversation, right? Who are those that were waiting for his birth and how did they know when he was born? Janet, do you want to start us off? I love that the account in Luke and Matthew, we can identify with all these people when you put out that nativity set that you have in your homes and families <laughs> and, and each of the parts and pieces, the shepherds, the angel, Mary, Joseph, the wise men, even the animals, and they're all there. And we can all identify with these individual people. Here's Mary and what, what she experiences in having this sacred role as being the mother, the first to awaken love in this child. Then you see the shepherds and how the first words are, fear not, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, not just to you, but to all people. For unto you is born this day a Savior, 
And each of us, there we are in that story, in our unique ways, identifying with all of those that he comes to. So uh, let's go back to the beginning. Like how, when did this all start uh, as far as looking forward to this moment? You can start with uh, Adam, right? Adam is uh, right after they're cast out of the garden is told to make sacrifices. And eventually he is told why, that this is in similitude of the only begotten son. And this uh, idea of the lamb of God comes up, right? That, that this is a sacrifice that will prefigure the sacrifice of Christ that will enable everyone to be restored to God's presence. And this is really meaningful for Adam who was just with God and no longer is. Um, and hopefully we can understand how meaningful it would be to him since we don't remember being with God like he did, but we can, we can take that upon ourselves. But if we get to, to Christ's time, this has become really meaningful to them, this idea of a Messiah, someone who will be sent because they feel oppressed. Mm -hmm. the, the Romans have uh, taken over the country and uh, it, it's both an emotional and a financial thing. And so they are looking for a deliverer, not recognizing that it's not just a political deliverance, someone is coming who will deliver them from death and hell itself. Mm. If you go to Luke chapter two, Famous chapter as far as the, the birth of Christ. Verse four, Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed mm -hmm. in verse five with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So they're feeling that squeeze of oppression, as you said. What can we learn about the way Jesus was raised from Nazareth, you know, living under Roman oppression? How does that add to the beauty of what he's about to, to begin with his mortal ministry? That's a great question. So Nazareth is one of the smallest villages in uh, Judea where things are the toughest. Jesus and Joseph are gonna fit right in there. They're, they're builders, right? They, uh, they're making their living by carving things out of limestone and, and in the Galilee area, largely basalt, which is a lava stone that's hard and sharp and not easy to work with. It's, it's good once you get it shaped, it, it's a strong stone but it's hard to work with. Janet? Powerful, that metaphor, just thinking of, of working with stone, yeah. Carrie, and all these verses that we have this week, Colossians and Peter and Corinthians, are about what can happen inside each of us by the power of Jesus Christ, that we can become a holy nation, and that that's the overcoming of the adversary. Ben, I was thinking too, I love how Mary comes to Elizabeth, and enters into that home and just her Magnificat that we treasure so much, this testimony of Mary's words. It's like she's sharing the Sermon on the Mount before her son will give it, right? He will bring to the hungry. Mm -hmm. He will help the meek. And she knew the scripture. She knew what the Savior would be like. But then how she says in verse 54, he hath hopen, helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, that chesed love that Carrie will talk about that's all throughout the Old Testament as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And she can see he will come. He'll be born in answer to that bringing mercy as was promised to the fathers ages past, to the great matriarchs and patriarchs of the past. And the work is this like softening of our own hearts and lives, this change within us, this work on the basalt within each of us mm. that Christ will do. And it's not that overcoming of Rome, it's far grander far greater, far more personal to me, to each of us. 
In fact, if we could turn to just a couple of verses earlier sure. in Zacharias' prophecy and, and go to verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. And this, this idea of redeeming his people is, is a really common theme in, in the covenant and talking about his people. He hath raised up a horn of salvation, so power of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Mm. This idea that he's, he's acknowledging, we've been looking forward to this forever, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, that hath performed the, the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So they have been looking forward to this for so long. Mm. And here we have Mary and Zacharias, who are eyewitnesses to the beginning of this event saying, it's here, it is finally here. But even in with them saying it, you get this idea they don't fully grasp the mm -hmm. scope yes. of it. Uh, something I'd like to ask both of you about your thoughts on is the two different reactions from the shepherds mm -hmm. and from Mary as far as the declaration of, of Christ being born. If we can start in verse 15. Uh, Jed, do you mind reading and kind of uh, taking us on a little walk through uh -huh. these two responses? love this. The angels have come, they've told the shepherds, and they just were in awe, right? And it says in verse 15, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And of course, they come with haste and they see Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And then this verse, and when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child, that this is the Savior born. And then, of course, that next very next verse, you have this contrast in Mary. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And what a place for a woman that um, just all the experience of caring life and the, the bond and tie that she has to him and her responsibility. Um, to love and nurture and guide. How could she do anything but ponder, right? Uh, who this is that has come from me and that I have been called upon to carry into this earth. So very tender. And what better way in scripture to capture it than she pondered all these things in her heart. Janet, how does being a mother yourself help you connect and relate to what Mary is experiencing? Yeah, it's, I think for all of us um, as women, whether we born life or not, that nurturing of life that is so deep within us, the capacity, the desire for that is very tender to read her, her witness and think about her experience and her, the work after that of nurturing his life and awakening within him love and consciousness and conscience, all that a mother does in that nurturing relationship. It's profound. Mm -hmm. How could we thank Mary enough? That's beautiful. Carrie, as we talk about this amazing event, can you talk to us a little bit about the wise men and, and the bringing of gifts and how we can relate when it comes to us giving gifts to the Savior? Yeah, and maybe we can tie that into the, the question you had before where you've got Mary pondering in her heart, uh, you've got the, the shepherds who go and spread abroad, and then you have the wise men who worship and give. Okay. Right? And there should probably be some of each of those in us. Yeah, okay. There are times for pondering, there are times for publishing, and there are times for worship and giving. And often the publishing is best done by that giving, right? So I, I, I love this idea that it, it should come from worship. 
they came to worship him, and part of worship was, was giving gifts. And I think one of the most effective ways we worship Christ is by giving him of ourselves and then also giving ourselves to others. Uh, a tradition that my parents started that we've continued in, in my family and my children, now that they're older, uh, our youngest is 15, the oldest is 25. We've got, you know, uh, they're mature enough to reflect on this. They've talked about how much it's affected them is that when it comes time to give gifts out, we don't have piles of these are the gifts to me. We have piles of these are the gifts I'm giving someone else. And it's totally changed the focus where they're not that excited about what they're getting. They're excited about what they're giving. And to me, that's really what Christmas is about mm -hmm. is to, to, to have that focus of what can I do to bless other people's lives? How can I give to other people? And, and that's one of the best parts of Christmas. I'd like to hear from the audience. What are some gifts you can give to Christ during this Christmas season? Virginia. I have nativity scenes all over my house. <laughs> I actually have two that stay up all year round and they have the Christmas lights on them and they are on every night. So in our home, we are always keeping that Christ in our hearts. And I think that was the biggest gift I could give to my children was that Christ is the center of Christmas, not the gifts. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Virginia. Uh, I want to close with a quote from Bonnie Oskerson. She said, The spirit of Christmas is Christ-like love. The way to increase the Christmas spirit is to reach out generously to those around us and give of ourselves. The best gifts are not material things, but gifts of listening, of showing kindness, of remembering, of visiting, of forgiving, of giving time. Thank you both so much for uh, sharing with us on our first topic of Christ condescending to be born among us. And for the audience, thank you as well for sharing. And for you at home, what is your favorite Christ-centered Christmas tradition? Share with us on Facebook and Instagram. Eternal life to me is happiness. Just all the people that I love together getting along. I think eternal life will be a lot like how we're living now. We'll still be with our families, building relationships with one another, but we'll be in a more exalted state. We'll be serving one another. We'll be in the presence of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, which will be more wonderful than I can even imagine now. I used to imagine eternal life as sitting on the beach at the end of my life, being proud of myself for making it to the end. But now I imagine eternal life with my family. I think of it as in being in service to my Heavenly Father and living with a community that I know is not the same as me, but we're all united. And so I really think that eternal life is going to be living in Zion. I foresee eternal life being a place that we're able to finally understand um, everything that we've gone through in this life and, and all the questions that we've carried and um, all the experiences that we have to fully understand why and and to to know that everything that we went through meant something our second topic for today is christ fulfilled his mission so i can have eternal life so we just spent some time talking about his birth what can we learn about now his mission and i think if we're going to talk about his mission let's look at what we actually learn in the book of mormon about it, and then we'll see an echo in the New Testament. But Nephi says this so clearly, if we go to 2 Nephi 31, verse 9, and again, it showeth unto the children of men the straightness of the path and the narrowness of the gate by which they should enter. 
he having set the example before them. And he said unto the children of men, follow me. This is part of Christ's mission is to set the example for us that we learn how to act and what to do by, by following Christ's example. And that will tie into that second part of his mission, which is also that, that he suffers for us to make up for when we don't follow his example very okay. well. And I think Peter speaks about that very powerfully in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. So you see, he's got both parts there. He suffered for us, and he left an example of how we can follow him. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. That's the death of the fallen man and, and rebirth through Christ. By whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And I think that last line is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. We follow his example. That's what we're supposed to do. But sometimes we go astray. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness that by his stripes we are healed. And that's, that's hearkening back to Isaiah, right. right? But by his stripes we are healed so that he as the, our bishop can change our souls so that we live again and, and can overcome death and our own uh, lack of following his example or otherwise called sin. Janet, what can you add to that? Ben, I was thinking about Christmas and I'm sure all of you relate to the feelings of Christmas and some of its anticipation, excitement. And then there's this deep home feeling. Hmm. There's this feeling of home that's associated with Christmas. My husband's parents divorced when he was six and he, was not, he did not grow up as a Christian or religious at all. But there were maybe four or five times across his growing up that his parents would come together one time a year, and it was Christmas. And when he found Christ later in his life, he would talk about how Christmas always had this incredibly special reality to it. And it was home, and it was wholeness and completion. I can't help but hear when you read 1 Corinthians 15, Handel's Messiah, and the librettist who would add these verses. But we have verse 20 in Corinthians 15. Now is Christ risen from the dead. And you hear the trumpets, like he will rise again and bring about the resurrection. As in Adam all die in verse 22, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And then verse 28, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, death, sin, hell, the parting of relationships, the brokenness of reality, all those things are subdued unto him. The son being subject, all things under him, that God may be all in all. And that's the feeling my husband had as a child. He was feeling God, right? That transcendence, that we can overcome these barriers because of his subduing it all under his goodness and virtue and love. And because of the significance of of Christ's mission, there are so many witnesses of this. Which witnesses are we studying this week that can really help us understand and gain a testimony of Christ's mission? We're ending the New Testament, right, at this time. And here you get this culmination, this Christmas lesson culmination, where Paul says, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, 
and that he was buried and that he rose again in the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen of Cephas, of Peter, then of the 12. And after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren, all these witnesses, all these people who witnessed that he overcame. And then of course, can't you hear Joseph Smith saying, Mm -hmm. right? In section 76, verses 21 and 22, This is the testimony last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. So you hear Paul bear witness of what Peter saw and all of these other people and Mary and all of them. And then you see the prophet Joseph saying, we bear witness to that he came, he was born, he died, he was resurrected and he lives. And it's like Christmas and Easter all together in the New Testament here, these witnesses that we see and that he truly lives, did what he said he would do, fulfilled the covenant. And because of that, we can as well. I love hearing you uh, share of these experiences. Uh, would you mind sharing with us, uh, Carrie, your brief testimony? How, how did you come to know that, that Christ truly does live? I'm happy to, to answer that question. And probably the most recent time for me that really spoke to me, it was the first Sunday I went to church after my father passed away. And it was just kind of a normal sacrament meeting. But the last hymn that we sang was, If You Could Hide a Kolob. Hmm. And at the very end of that song, they repeat several times the line, there is no death above. And the spirit came to me so strongly, like I just sat there for a long time. Everyone left and I was in the chapel by myself by the end of that, as I just kept hearing the words again and again, there is no death above because Jesus Christ rose again. And as a result, and it was very personal to me because I'd just seen my father for the last time. And to know there is no death above because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And while I'm so grateful for reading about Paul and Peter and Joseph Smith and all of our apostles that signed the the Declaration of Christ and all of these testimonies, I'm so grateful for that. I wouldn't know about it were it not for apostolic testimony but I'm even more grateful for that personal testimony mm-hmm. from the Holy Ghost that was there for me when I needed it. I'm going to ask you the same question. Yeah, so powerful to think of this great creator. He feels what I feel. And whether that's witnesses that we have as a child where we can feel his presence or me every day working on my own weaknesses and knowing he loves me, his love is greater still. and I can feel it in my heart, his reality. And I think it's always those moments when his love goes beneath all wounds and you can feel it because he took the wounds upon himself as we read in Isaiah's words, but that he is with us. His love is constant. So, so many witnesses, Ben, Mm -hmm. not unlike Paul says, all these witnesses that confirm that that he truly lives and lives with us, has condescended to be with us. Thank you both for sharing that. I feel strength when I hear the testimony of others. I'd, I'd love to hear from the audience. How have you gained a testimony of Christ and his mission? Todd. All of us, if not for the atonement, must experience that second spiritual death where we are removed from our heavenly parents forever. Um, but Jesus Christ was removed from our heavenly parents, at least for a time, so that we might never have to experience that I uh, I started this week at my grandfather's funeral. I'm just so grateful that we are going to be able to be together as a family again and never be separated because Jesus Christ was willing to do that for us. I love, Todd, how you, you mentioned that this was motivated by, by love. Mm. 
all the suffering, everything that Christ did was, was just born out of pure love for us. What do we draw from that, especially during this Christmas season, as we look at, as you talked about earlier, Carrie, following his example of, of showing and demonstrating love? To me, there are two verses of scripture that if we understand those two and put them together, it, it, it changes the way I understand every other verse of scripture, everything else in the gospel. And one of them is Moses 1.39, for behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So now we know what God is doing. Mm-hmm. John 3.16 is the why. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, right? So because God loves us, his whole plan is to save us and give us eternal life. And that's why he sent his son. And with those things in mind, everything else makes more sense. Janet, which specific witnesses uh, can we focus on as we dive into studying about Christ and his mission? As we were reading Corinthians, I couldn't help but think about Abinadi going back to the Book of Mormon, and there he is to be killed for his testimony. And he quotes Isaiah 53, but of course in the Book of Mormon and Mosiah 14. And in the face of these these men who want to kill him, who have denied the Christ, who have lived paths of unrighteousness, he is bearing witness of the love and incredible mercy of of a Redeemer. In verse five, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And you hear those words that Carrie read in First Peter. And so this witness of this glorious Redeemer who comes and condescends to be with us in our mortal experience and overcome it by the power of his virtue and his love. Carrie? You know, I think towards the end of his life, John was probably asking the same question. And so I'll just go with his answer, where he starts out in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this is Jehovah who was with God, and he is divine. But then he's going to say, let's go to verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we've got this idea that that divine being came to be with us. And why? Let's, Let's jump up a few verses. Um, verse 12, but as many as received him, meaning Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We can all become, of course, we're all children of God, but what he's saying is this divine being came down and was made flesh and lived the same way we did so that we can become children of God in a different sense. That thing we talked about earlier, the the natural man being God, now we are reborn, different creatures, sanctified in Christ so that we can have a communion and a union with him that brings us all greater joy than we could have ever imagined before that. The condescension is meaningful because of the death and resurrection of Christ. And to add another witness to what both of you said, and Eldon Tanner said this, we believe that Jesus Christ is literally the son of God, the only begotten in the flesh, that he was born of a mortal mother, that he dwelt among men, that he gave man the plan of life and salvation, that he was crucified, and that he had power over death 
and willingly gave his life and was literally resurrected so that man might be saved and resurrected from the dead and enjoy eternal life. Thank you so much, both of you, for everything you've shared on our second topic about Christ fulfilling his mission so that we can have eternal life. The audience, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your thoughts with us as well. And for those at home, we still have much to cover in footnotes, so please stay with us. I feel like the Spirit communicates with me through music and song, whether it's hymns or instrumentals or um, just melodies. I feel really connected. The Spirit communicates with me through a feeling of confidence in a place where I probably shouldn't be feeling it. Um, it's really easy for me to kind of feel overwhelmed uh, just around a lot of people or in novel situations, but um, when the Holy Ghost touches my heart and my mind, um, I can feel confident. Uh, maybe not necessarily that everything's going to go perfectly, but that everything's going to happen the way that it needs to, and that I, through the Atonement of Jesus Christ, am going to be able to have the power that I need to do the things that I've been asked to do. The Spirit communicates to me through a, a knowledge that what I know, what I've heard, what I've felt is true. And that moment is always there, no matter the experiences I've had in life or the choices I make. As I look back, I cannot deny what knowledge I gained at that time. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. We've dismissed our studio audience and are looking forward to building upon our previous discussions about Christ's condescension and eternal mission with Carrie and Janet. All right. Well, thank you both so much for what you've shared uh, previously in our discussion. Uh, I'd like to revisit some of these accounts of uh, Christ's birth and kind of do a little compare and contrast between Matthew's account and Luke's account. Do you want to start us off, uh, Carrie, and let's uh, we'll kind of dive into this? Sure. One of the big differences, I think, is their audience. You've got Luke, who is not uh, a Jew and is not really writing to Jews, who is going to tie this in, as I said, to big kind of global setting and so on. Whereas Matthew, who is a Jew and is writing to Jews, is going to do a, a really specifically Jewish thing. Starting Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and he just walks us through until we get to, to David, the way he tells us, 14 generations between Abraham and David. So you get this establishment of the covenant, 14 generations to the height of the really kingdom of Israel. Then you go 14 more generations, and you get the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. So 14 more generations, and you get to the low point. And then you go another 14 generations and you get to Christ. And so he seems to be saying we have the covenant established. We reach our height. We stop keeping the covenant. We get to a low point and things are bad. But now we're back to the point where covenant is reestablished. The fulfillment of the covenant is happening with the birth of Christ. And it ties it all together into the expected Messiah and, uh, and the fulfillment of the covenant and everything we've all been waiting for since Abraham's day is now fulfilled in this one moment and this one person. Mm, powerful. One thing I noticed as I was studying this is that the accounts differ. There's a pretty significant event that is missing from the Luke account that Matthew writes about in Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. A lot of that is missing from the Luke account. Is there any reason why we, we have this 
seemingly extremely important event, a life event in the life of Jesus is, is not given in Luke's account? Yeah, well, and it's, it's a good question. Again, I'm so grateful that we have both accounts because mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch Luke has that, that yeah. Matthew doesn't have, right? As far as like, this is when we find out about the angels coming and uh, the shepherds and everything else is from Luke. So they both have different audiences with th- these different things they're aiming at. I, I think that his inclusion of the Egypt story is at least partially due to what we were just talking about. He is showing the continuity of uh, everything that's happened since Abraham and the covenant in Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant. So think about the great story of Israel is that after you get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Joseph of Egypt, that they go into Egypt. And they're in Egypt, it's their incubation period as a nation. And then as a nation, they're, they're born as a nation really as they leave Egypt in the Exodus and they come in and they inherit the promised land and the covenant is really fulfilled. And then you see that happening with Christ. The the covenant is gonna be fulfilled in Christ being born, but that's not his emphasis. Really, his emphasis is he goes to Egypt, has that incubation period, and now he comes out, and then he's gonna start to talk to us about Christ fulfilling his mission, Mm -hmm. themes of covenant, uh, promised land, redemption, deliverance, and Messiah, you know, Moses is a kind of Messiah, he's an anointed one and that kind of thing. All of this is brought to mind in this story and it just helps them recognize Christ for who he is and what he's doing and the fulfillment of the wonderful promises of the covenant. That's pretty neat. It's been so powerful to study the Old Testament Mm -hmm. and then the New Testament in sequence and to see that this God who answers all of these promises of redemption in the Old Testament symbolically in a sense, yeah. right? Does it really, but but also symbolically, here it is, the fulfillment in the New Testament of what that redemption really means and looks like. And Kara, you spoke about this earlier. Sometimes we study the, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, whereas the more you study them together, man, yes. it's, it opens up so much and it really strengthens your understanding of who Jesus really is. So I'm, I'm so with you. I, you know, I think about uh, a being who delivered them from the Egyptians, who miraculously spares Jerusalem from the mighty Assyrian, Assyrian. army, mm-hmm. who allows them, when they're not keeping covenant, them to be conquered by Babylon. But then, because Babylon is oppressing them, it's a short-lived, mighty empire, but short-lived. And then he brings Babylon down and brings in the Persians so they can come back. And And this is the being then that will end up being born in a manger, mm-hmm. right? So one of the interesting things, uh, you get uh, Luke, who again is not a Jew, is not familiar with the area, and he, he talks about Bethlehem as the city of David, and we've incorporated it into, you know, once in Royal David City. It's actually the only time ever that Bethlehem is referred to as the city of mm-hmm. David. Jerusalem is, the, uh, every other place in scripture, mm-hmm. Jerusalem is referred to as the city of David. And I think this is actually a Gentile kind of mistake, but it's not a mistake, because it is the city that David came from, and that's what, Luke is trying to do is highlight he is descended from David, right? And and that's why he'll give this genealogy as well. But we we get into this this city of Bethlehem that is near Jerusalem, but it's not a particularly important city other than that tie to David. I, I think we also should stop and think for a moment about Mary and Joseph and and maybe why they're going there. Think about Mary who, when she is visited by the angel, and she's told, you're going to be pregnant, but she has to realize, okay, no one's gonna believe that. And I'm in a very small 
village where everybody knows everybody, mm -hmm. and it's incredibly religiously conservative. In many ways, that's the end of her life. And she has to assume, and my, my marriage with Joseph is going to be over, and I, this is just, but she says, behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it, be it unto me. me, yeah. She's basically saying, I'll go through this suffering if that's what you want. So beautiful how Joseph is not willing to put her away yeah. publicly. Yeah. He, he doesn't know how to understand what's happened, won't put her away, but then so in verse... verse 19, is that where you're yeah, looking? 19, and then in 20, how he has that dream, and he's told, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And then he's told, this child shall be called Jesus, which I love that understanding of the name Jesus. It just means salvation itself. Yeah. Yeah. This is salvation. And then, of course, Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and he took unto him his wife. And he knew her not until she brought forth her firstborn son. He has to know he's going to—this is going to be hard for him. They're going to be in a stable. That's most likely a cave. He's going to be laid in a manger. Mangers there are made out of stone. Mm. If we're going to talk about this being who delivered Israel again and again, who created the earth, mm. to be born by parents who are fleeing— for shame, um, who can't find a place to live, to be born in a cave with animals around and put in a stone manger, that's condescension. That's condescension. Mm -hmm. And we've learned through archaeology and so on. In my own excavation, we were often looking at the remains of people from this exact time period and trying to figure out their health and so on. Most people don't make it past age 30 to 40. That's how old most people are living, right? Wow. So the fact that Christ and his apostles are in that age range means they're among the more robust people already, but there are all sorts of other things that they just didn't know how to cure. <laughs> and, and so the Savior is not coming just to, to be with the poor, he's coming to be yes. poor. Yes. He's coming to suffer through these things. And that's part of the condescension as well that this mighty being went through mm -hmm. so that we could both see that example so that he could fully understand us and so that then he could be the great conqueror. Yes. The one who conquers death and hell itself. But not just that, everything in our lives. I know I find so much comfort mm -hmm. When I think of Christ who can conquer kingdoms to deliver Israel, he can conquer battles with anxiety, depression, pornography. There's nothing he can't That's overcome. Right. And we know that from the great Jehovah of the Old Testament, mm -hmm. so beautiful. And then his condescension then lifted above. And with Christmas, uh, are there any other symbols that perhaps we use all the time around Christmas, but that don't, we don't really connect it to what the text teaches that we can talk about? I love the, the contrasts, right? And I think this Old Testament, New Testament, but just the contrasts that are, that are in Christmas symbols. So you have red and green. Mm -hmm. And you have red, the symbol of blood and death. And you have green, the symbol of life. And in him, it all came together, his giving of his life. You have light and darkness. You have the star shining and casting light over so much darkness. I think even with that, uh, and I mean, this is something tied to Santa Claus, but I still think it's something we can see. He's He's got red and white, 
right? Yes. And as soon as I see red and white juxtaposed, I think of Isaiah 1. Right. Though your, your sins be scarlet, scarlet, they can be white as yes. snow and so on. And uh, again, I think uh, whether that was an intended symbol or not, and it may have been, yes. a lot of people were thinking through these symbols carefully, but it's a symbol for me now yes. uh, to think of how Christ, and, and it brings me back to this Book of Mormon phraseology uh, that your your sins can be washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Yes. You, you don't usually get things to become white by washing them in blood, right? <laughs> but that's it's that, that contrast that Christ's blood makes us pure. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the living Christ. We talked about witnesses of Christ mm -hmm. and um, you know those who stood uh, given their testimony of him. And I love this last paragraph that reads, we bear testimony as his duly ordained apostles that Jesus is the living Christ, the immortal son of God. He is the great King Emmanuel who stands today on the right hand of his father. He is the light the life and the hope of the world. His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. God be thanked for the matchless gift of his divine son. So here we have again this, the gift, the light, the hope that we celebrate at Christmas time. And what a beautiful testimony of, of prophets, seers, and revelators talking about who he is from the beginning to the middle and to the end. What are some of your thoughts on how we can really help capture that spirit of Christmas during this time of year? I was thinking as we were talking, Ben, and this isn't directly answering that question. I hope that's okay. I guess so. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes when we think about how we shouted for joy mm. at this mortal experience, and it is fraught with difficulty for every single one of us, and for some more than others, it's fraught with things that seem so much less than joyful, difficulty and pain and suffering and sorrow. And you can wonder, what is this story of joy, right? <laughs> and I think that that anticipation that we all have, that all will be overcome and every knee shall bend and every, every tongue shall speak in worship before him. We anticipate that day. We look with hope. That's the great story of Christmas. It hasn't all been overcome. But the assurance is it will be. Mm -hmm. That assurance that we don't see yet fulfilled in mortality, Christmas is saying He is coming. Thanks, Janet. Mm -hmm. Carrie, what are your thoughts? I would say we need to focus on loving God and loving His children, right? The two great mm -hmm. obligations mm -hmm. under the covenant. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the two great commandments. And to do it in a way, you'll remember a couple of years ago, President Nelson asked us in general conference to make more time for Christ. And if we can consciously say, how am I going to make more, however much time I have been making, this Christmas season, can I make more time for Christ? And then keep asking ourselves, what are our motives? And for everything we're doing, whether that be the way you're making Christmas dinner or the, the way we're doing any of these little traditions that we have, is it somehow based on my love for God and my love for his children? And if we'll focus on those things, more time for Christ, love God, love children. Oh, what a Christmas. Mm -hmm. So with all that we've discussed and covered, is there anything else that you think would be important for those watching to, to learn or to understand a little better? I would maybe just say how blessed we are to live in this era of time. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'd love to go and see Abraham and see his day, but all of that looking forward is wonderful. 
but looking forward to Christ is not as great as knowing it's happened, right? Mm -hmm. They knew it would happen. I, I, I'm sure Abraham knew every bit as well that it would happen as I know that it did. But I'm, I'm grateful to be where we are. Yeah. I'm grateful that we're in the restoration where we can have the declaration that you just read, where we have not only Isaiah 53, but Abinadi's commentary on Isaiah 53, mm -hmm. and we have Christ introducing himself to Joseph Smith and in the Doctrine and Covenants and everything. We have so much knowledge about Christ. We have his representatives here on earth to teach us about Christ and to encourage us to make more time for Christ. Oh, what a joyous time, and of all times, Christmas time in the Restoration. Mm. There is no better time in the history of the earth mm. than right now. There are a lot of hymns that I, I love. My favorite is Angels We Have Heard on High. And it's a little bit because we get to sing that chorus again and again in the way that we do, because I feel like I'm praising God, mm -hmm. right? And it really is a... a, a uh, it really is glory to God and the highest, right? They're, they're quoting in Latin the verses that we have in Luke of what the angels say, but you sing it in a way where you feel like you are praising God. And, and let's, let's, go, let's read exactly okay. what they say. Um, let's Luke go to Luke. Two. Yeah, Luke chapter 2. We've got verse 10. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be unto all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying. So actually they don't sing it. We, they, they just say it. But it is glory to God mm -hmm. in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. There's that love of God, love of men being exhibited, but it's also them doing exactly what Christ would do throughout his ministry, which is anytime people gave him attention, he turned it to God. He said, it's not about me, it's about the Father. I'm here to bring you to the Father. The angels are doing that same thing. And so I love in this hymn, that we praise God and we, we do it, I mean, the, just the way it's written, and I'm a terrible singer, but I belt that out as hard <laughs> as I can because I want to praise God for sending his son. Carrie, we have this, I, my husband does not sing on tune. <laughs> and he did not grow up with Christmas hymns. He loves the Christmas hymns and it is a riot to sing together. But, <laughs> but we have discovered a love for angels from the realms of glory, which is the same melody. Yeah. And actually, Mac Wilberg of the Tabernacle Choir brought those words, and it ends with this most, and so every concert at Christmas, the Tabernacle Choir ends with this because it captures just what you described, this praising. But that last verse says, Though an infant, now we view him. He shall fill his Father's throne. Gather all the nations to him. Every knee shall then bow down. Oh. Glory, and then this praising, right? And, and this, this glorious time of looking to the future still, Right, gathering all the nations to him, this infant who would rise and triumph and, and how to capture it, but except in song, mm -hmm. this glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Several years ago, my family and I, we went to St. George Temple and they had in the visiting center, they had a big crush, tons of different ones from all different countries. And we got to the, the nativity that was from Tonga. And my kids got excited. They're like, oh, dad, they're pointing, dad, this is the one from Tonga, you know? So they were all excited. And so uh, we went up there and I want to show you, as we walk up to this nativity scene, it was, it was different from the other ones. And my kids noticed 
They said, Dad, <clears throat> baby Jesus is not in the manger. And I, I got closer and I looked and you can see Mary is holding him. Mm. And if you know anything about um, Tongan culture, Polynesian culture, they're very loving of infants. And it just struck me uh, when I saw that because... Be near me. Be near me. As we talk about Christmas and focusing on, on the Savior, I hope that as I look at my life and my surroundings, that I can pick that baby up and hold him close to me. What am I doing in my life that is bringing him close to me? And what a message, you know, that as great as he was, because he condescended, we can have that, that personal, close relationship with him. Ben, I was thinking of, uh, as a child, we lived in Mexico City, and it was just after the earthquake, the terrible earthquake in the 80s that had just nearly wiped out Mexico City. And at Christmas time, we didn't have a lot of money, so my parents said, let's just give Christmas away. So as part of that, we, we do music. We carried our instruments. I had my little harp and the violins. We carried it to the hospital, and we sang Christmas songs in English mm. and to the best that we could in some Spanish and played, walked through the halls with these people who were in hospital beds. There would be 10 in a room at a time. And, and to feel the connection and that the barrier was transcended by the story of Christmas. And I think thinking of how we have these meaningful experiences at Christmas time where we get to condescend, if you will, with those who have less. So the giving that is so meaningful is, is connecting as the Savior did with us in our frailty and weakness and His condescension with us. He invites us into that with our fellow human beings at Christmas time. And so all over the world, it's like there are no boundaries, all lifted, all coming down to help lift, that that is the story of Christmas. And you just hear, right, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. He is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. And you hear that beautiful account that he would justify all of us. You hear in verse 11, justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So when we participate, it feels like our experience of the atonement of Jesus Christ happens as we participate with Him in that work of offering mercy, then we receive it through Him who can measure how beautiful Isaiah's testimony is here. I can't thank you enough, both of you, for just bringing this spirit with us today, for sharing your testimonies and your thoughts and, and your intellect into the scriptures and what that's added. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and thank you for joining us for this Christmas discussion. I encourage you to record and act upon any impressions you've received. For additional study and teaching resources, visit byutv.org slash comefollowup. And join us next week as we move into the final week of the year and discuss the closing chapters of the New Testament and the final words from John the Revelator in Revelation 15 through 22. Thanks for watching. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting. 